the fact that something is here means something had to create the something because we get we don't we all know and so do scientists that you don't get something from nothing and then the idea of how intricately detailed all of creation is speaks to the fact that there is a creator behind it and then last week we talked about okay so if there is a god and he created everything then why in the world would that god allow evil to enter the world because that is probably the most common question that gets asked is why would god allow all the struggles if he really exists and he really is good and we talked about how th there are th that is an, a pretty tense question for us even in our own hearts because as christians we still deal with sin and suffering in this fallen world but we talked about how it was the only way that that god our god could display goodness and love and grace and mercy because you he couldn't tell us about that or explain it to us unless we had some way of knowing it and how like my example was if all the world was black the color black you couldn't even explain to somebody what black was let alone what white is right and so it's that same idea and so this week what we're going to look at is go okay so if there is a god and there is and even good and evil help explain his existence and his story how is he choosing to reveal himself and and what is he saying about himself that's the story that god is telling and jeff mentioned that the other big um, conflict we have in the culture is people don't believe the story of the Bible and that's what we're going to address today is one why we can believe the Bible that's the teaching part and then we'll get to Lord willing um, the praise part the the, pro the proclamation and the preaching part of so what is God's story that he's been telling from the beginning so before we do that I want to back up and ask the first talking points question why is story so powerful like like and i for, not, not i mean god's story i just mean what why is the concept of story such a powerful thing to people visualization so it, because we are we are imaginative creatures right god has given us intellect and part of that intellect is imagination we're dreamers we've always been like all people are Right? They might dream, they might be, the dreams might look different, but everybody has this sort of, that innate part of them. It's part of the creator God that he's put in us. We love to create. Story is a way of creating. What else? What? It reaches all ages. So, like, one of the things that's so amazing about a man like C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, I, I, I think I've quoted him in the last couple of weeks, I won't quote him today, um, but I think, like, he was, an, he was an atheist. If you've never heard his story, there's, there's lots of ways you can see it, but you ought to hear his story. He could write some incredibly heady intellectual stuff, like mere Christianity, like the, um, like, um, the, um, uh, oh, I'm just blanking on the divorce, um, what the great divorce right like, like these are some and at the same time he had an imagination that would like melt your brain because he also wrote things like the narnia series and his description of these made-up animals would even put Peter to shame right and so um so so he, there's there is it's so he could speak to children and he could also speak to like very intellectual oxford scholars right and and um so so there's that piece of it too why else any other thoughts about why stories so powerful? You can learn from them, right? Most now, guys, I get this. Hallmark didn't invent. I know I'm just about to offend about half of us. Hallmark didn't invent the love story. 
Do you know that, they, they, in fact, they only invented one, and they just keep telling it over and over and over again. However, and I am not, I am not above sitting down and watching a Hallmark movie. I'm just saying that's their story. However, guys, all cultures, all cultures have love stories. They all have stories of pursuing love, of love that has gone wrong, and, is, and, and in somehow it's being like pursued to be made right. But we never stop and ask the question, where does that come from? Why would, why would a story like that speak to the hearts of people, regardless of your ethnicity, what generation you lived in? Why is that? And it's because, as image bearers of God, he, God has put that, in, that, that love story, that, that innate desire for pursuing love, in every person who's ever lived, even the ones that deny his existence. That's the crazy part about it. And so this idea of story, so when I, now, now, here's the, now here's the difference, and it is key to what we're talking about today. When I'm talking about Hallmark that tells a story, or I'm talking about Marvel that tells a story, or I'm talking about who, even C.S. Lewis that tells a story, we think made up, right? It, because those are. His story is history, it is actually what is happening in the world because he's the God who's writing all of it. He's the one who wrote creation into existence. So his story is unlike every other story in the world for all kinds of reasons, but one of them is because it's not fictional. It's nonfiction, and we're all living it. Now, what we're going to look at is, so, so in, in, like why, then, is God's story so powerful? Well, if you're sitting here and you're a Christian and, and, you've, been, and you've been here for a while, um, you know, like we, we, spend all, we teach through, our, our, our regular diet is to teach through books of the Bible because we believe that's where the power is. I want to step back from, from that concept of where the power of God's story is just for a little bit and talk more about the logos of God. How is God's story from beginning to end? Why, what makes it so powerful? And one, it is because we can trust the rhema word of God, that's the written word of God. We can trust this. That's our first point. And our second point is because you get to participate in the story. The story is about Christ. He's the main character. But it's also about you and I. Like this is not some story that you just get to read about. You are, you have, whether you know it or not, whether you know him or not, you've entered into his story. So wouldn't it be good for us to know his story so that we can help people understand that do you know that you're part of God's story? Even if you don't know God, that you're part of the story that he's telling in the world? Story is incredibly powerful. So we're going to start off with this idea of that we can trust God's story. Now, I've said this each week. I'll probably say it every week that I teach. I need to remind you because there's people that maybe didn't, that haven't been here. They don't know my story. I'm not going to tell my whole story, but I, I'm 50, I'll be 55 this year. I, um, I spent almost the first half of, that, of those 55 years as a God-mocking atheist who did not believe the Bible. So I don't stand up here today preaching the word of God because my parents told me it was true. Or even because my basketball coach in high school, who was one of the first people to start telling me about the Bible, what told me it was true. I, 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 even after high school, after college, after, as I was teaching high school to other people, I would tell, I would tell my Christian um, friends or people that I would interact with, you can't believe this story. It's just a bunch of made-up myth. It was written by a whole bunch of white dudes that were just trying to control the world, right? 
And, and the reason we have to take a few minutes this morning and talk about why we can trust the Bible is because it is massively under attack. Jeff mentioned it. The two areas that are, that are, that are the most, op, the, the, the ones we get pushed back on as biblical Christians is, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And then you can't really believe the Bible. And I would probably flip them and say, that's the first one. Because from the beginning, God has always attacked or Satan has always attacked God's word. From the beginning, it's, well, God didn't really say that. And so nowadays, with the, with the, with the blessing or the benefit of things like YouTube, etc., you can find a whole lot of people that sound like they know what they're talking about and make really good arguments about why this cannot be trusted. And more and more professing Christians are being drawn away from God's word because they've listen to those voices guys i was what my point is i was one of those voices i'm here today with a different voice not because of something i did but because of what christ has done in me but i want you to understand i get you if you're if you're sitting here today or you're listening to my voice online and you're going yeah but but i i i believe those people that say you can't really believe the bible right i understand i do and I'm hoping that today, the Holy Spirit will use God's story to change your heart like he's changed mine. So let's talk about why we can trust the Bible. The first thing that we have to talk about is that there are, there are four words that we're just going to briefly look at. And we've talked about these in the training center a lot. And so if you're in the training center in our theology class, we do a bibliology week. And, and these are all in there. So for some of you, it's new. For some of you, it's not. Um, but, but again, I want to really emphasize this because, guys, have you, have you, ever, have you ever heard the name Bart Ehrman? He wrote a book called um, uh, Questioning Jesus. Incredibly popular, brilliant man, professor. He makes some of these arguments about why we can't really believe that that what we have in the Gospels are really what the the writers of the Gospels said. That the kinds of things that we've heard about the Word of God are, you can't believe it, it's made up myth, it was written to control people. The Da Vinci Code, who was uh, something Brown, I think was his last name. Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code. Like that, they, 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 they are finding great ways, even through story, to try to convince us not to believe God's story, right? To, to tell us, well, you can't really believe this is true. But one of the biggest arguments always is, well, you can't believe the Bible because it's been changed over time. And we have no original, like, we, we don't have the original writings anyway. And, and I want to spend the first few minutes sort of addressing that, because that was the one that had me as an atheist for years. We, we can't really believe this because this isn't, they didn't write in English. Our Bibles have been changed over time. It's the game of telephone. We just, they just changed it over and over and over. So we don't really know what Jesus said anyway. So why even read any of it? Guys, the only reason I said that to people, do you know why? Because somebody told me that. And I just believed it. Because one, my sinful heart that wants to be my own God wanted to believe it, but also because it, it sounds true the crazy and that is like that is bart ehrman's the guy that wrote about questioning jesus that is his biggest argument and here's the thing even he knows it's not true i've heard him admit it on podcasts i've heard him admit that that argument does not work and then weeks later on a different podcast i've heard him make the exact same argument again it's because it's a deceitful lie from the enemy and i don't think bart knows it i think he's just a tool I don't know the man. I'm sure he's a delightful person to have coffee with. He's just as lost as the day is long. Just like I was. Just like apart from Christ, you are. Right? So let's take a look at these four words. We're going to go through fairly quickly. The first one is 
this idea that the Bible is inspired. Inspiration is what it's called. So inspiration is where we get that is out of 2 Timothy um, 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God. It actually says, and, and I think the ESV translates this this way, this way, that all scripture is breathed out or God breathed. It means, what, so, so, so it's this idea, it's the same picture as when God made Adam and he formed him out of the dust and he breathes life into him. It's that same idea that, that all scripture was breathed into existence. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was sitting there when the writers of the Bible, whether it was the prophets of the Old Testament or Moses or whether it was um, people like Paul or, or Peter and first second Peter or any of the gospel writers it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was sitting there next to or even just in Paul's ear going hey write this down it was not a word-for-word word dictation what Peter tells us in second Peter when he writes is he says that that scripture was not it was not left up to men to, to just write what they wanted to write but they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they were to write but the Holy Spirit used their personalities. So why does that matter? Well, well here's part of why it matters. One, it, it is supernatural. It may, inspiration is the Holy Spirit's part of the, of the Bible. It makes the word of God supernatural. But here's the other piece. There are some things in there that you're like, why would the Holy Spirit write this? Because I don't understand why Paul's, Paul's little riff here, because every now and then when you read Paul, like he goes off on these little riffs about himself or about other people and you're like that doesn't sound very spirit it's not anti-spirit the spirit allowed him to write it but it's but that's the spirit allowing paul to interject his personality it's a it's it's this it's this combination of humanity writing it and god writing it that's what the inspiration of scripture is so that's the first word inspiration the second is what's called inerrancy and that's what i was referring to earlier and that's probably the one that gets the most um the most uh, bad press is inerrancy. And it goes something like this. Well, I mentioned earlier, it's like the game of telephone. Well, even if you believe that the Holy Spirit inspired um, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew to write Matthew, then that we don't have his original manuscripts. We don't have originally what was written down by Matthew. So you can't possibly, that can't possibly be what we have today. And, as, and then that was translated or that was recopied over centuries in Greek and then eventually in Latin. And then that Latin eventually went to English, Old English, and that Old English went to... And so now we don't even have anything close to what, to, what, um, to what Matthew actually wrote. Again, I used to say that all the time. The only reason I said that is because somebody told me that. That is not true. It is not biblical. Right? It is, it is ab now, now, is it true? So in, what inerrant means is in the original manuscripts, it was perfect. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. We don't have any of the original writings of, of Ma Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any of them. So there is some truth. So, so, so you'll hear Bart Ehrman say this. And, and, and many others, you'll hear them on YouTube and places, and they'll say something like this. There are over 100,000 discrepancies in the New Testament alone. There are more discrepancies, meaning what that means is they'll take copies of all these ancient manuscripts and they'll compare them in Greek. And, and by the way, the old ancient manuscripts in Greek, man, like somebody sent me, a, I think Adam or somebody sent me a screenshot of one. He's like, hey, can you, from the ARC exhibit, he's like, can you read this? One, my Greek ain't that good, brother. And two, those manuscripts are really hard to read. Because they're ancient, it, I mean, Greek had no punctuation, it had no paragraph format, it was just a whole bunch of, like, squiggly lines, right? But these dudes, like my Greek professor in college, this is what, I, at, at seminary, this is what he does for a living, um, is he reads those things, and he, and he 
talks about the discrepancies between them. Don't go there yet, Catherine. I'll, I'll get there in a minute. Because um, as soon as you put stuff like that up, people don't listen. Um, so, what, so, what ha- so, so here's what they do. They'll take all these manuscripts, these ancient manuscripts, and they'll compare them. And they'll say, oh, wait a minute. This one has a letter that's different. And the whole page, this one has a letter that's di- different than this one. And they'll count that as a, di- as a discrepancy, as an error. So what Bartleman will say is there are more errors, there are more discrepancies in the copies of the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. And people, So here's what he's saying. There are more mistakes than words in the New Testament, so why would we believe it? And man, when you hear that from a dude that sounds really smart, you're like, wow, I, 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 I guess we're wrong. Like, seriously, my parents lied to me, or you know, if that's the home you grew up, or wh- whatever, right? Here's the thing. He knows, they know, that a vast majority, like 90-something percent of those discrepancies make zero, they're, they're spelling errors because a word was spelled differently over the centuries. We change a letter, the, the way, like the letter of a word might get, might, might get dropped out of a word, and it was just spelled differently. There's things, things like that. Almost, in fact, in fact the, when, when someone says, so give us an example of one of these discrepancies that actually means something. I'm going to take the time to mention this. Here's, here's the example Erdman, Erdman goes to every single time. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, when, when this leper walks up to Jesus and says, if you are willing, heal me, it said, in the Gospel of Mark, almost all the manuscripts say that, um, that, that, that Jesus had compassion, so he healed the man. There are three manuscripts, not, not even ancient ones, three manuscripts. They have, they have Latin in them as well. So there's the Greek, and then the, the Latin, wasn't even, Latin wasn't even a language for hundreds of years after Jesus lived. So these are copies of copies of copies of copies. There are three that say something like, when the leper came up to Jesus and said, if you are willing, it says, Jesus was angry. And he reached out and touched the man. And what he's saying is, so if that's the case, and he's choosing to believe these three copies, when his whole argument is that, is that you have to be able to trust the ancient sources. He's picking three of the least trustworthy sources, and he's making his argument that that depicts Jesus as being angry. Well, let me just back up a step, and, I, and I'm taking way too long on this, but let me just back up a step. It, let's, say it really, let's say it really was true that Jesus was angry in that moment. What was he angry about? Was he angry? To, was he being annoyed at the, at the leper? What was he angry about? We know this by what, what did he do when he saw Jerusalem? What did he do at Lazarus' death? He cried, why? What, what frustrated him? The brokenness that sin allowed into the world. So even if it is true that those manuscripts are the correct ones, that say somehow Jesus was angry, it's not implying he's angry at the leper. He's angry at the effect of sin in the world. So it's not even a good argument. And yet, man, it sells massively. Oh, by the way, and you can put that, you can put that up now, the reason there are so many discrepancies in the New Testament, there, there are 100,000 differences, even though, even though most of them don't matter anyway, is because there are, by volumes, more copies of the, Old Te- of the New Testament, ancient manuscripts, than in all other works of antiquity combined. So the, in, your, in your bulletin, there's a handout that had, we've, we've pointed this out before, but that table's up there. So there's some names up there like Julius Caesar, right? He was um, the, the emperor of Rome. He lived, in, he lived in 50 B.C. The most ancient, the, 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 the oldest copy of the life of Caesar that we have in existence. 
So what, ha- so, so what happens is somebody when Jesus or when Caesar was alive was writing about Caesar's life. There were copies of copies of copies of copies made over hundreds of years. The, the oldest one we have in existence, and I'm not going to go through all of these, but is 900 A.D. That's, a hun- that's 900 and almost a millennium after the events actually happened is the oldest existing copy we have of the life of, Ju- of Julius Caesar. And we have 10 of them in existence. And nobody questions whether Julius Caesar actually did what he said he did. We have 10 copies, a thousand years after their ri- it was originally happened. Nobody questions it. And the same thing is true for Greek philosophers like Tacitus and Plato and Aristotle. There are my- very few copies hundreds of years apart from when the events actually occurred, and you can get a degree in Greek philosophy and not a single one of your philosophy professors will ever tell you that you might be studying something that didn't actually, be getting, didn't actually get written or spoken by Plato. Nobody will say that. Why? Well, we'll get there in a minute. Now, when you get to the New Testament, there are tens of thousands of copies. So if, if we had five, if, if, I, if I just asked the kids in this room to, to write out a paragraph and I had five, like from memory, and they, and they wrote it out and I had five copies up here, right? Or I had them do it and we had a hundred copies and we were trying to compare the differences. Which set of copies would have the most differences? The hundred or the five? The hundred, why? Because there's more chance that there's error. The reason there are more errors in the New Testament than in any other ancient work of antiquity is because it has been copied more than any other ancient work by far. So, of course, there are going to be more errors. So, that leads us to our, um, our last two words, and they're going to go much quicker, and we're going to come back to that idea in just a minute, this idea of inerrancy. The last two are sufficiency. The word sufficiency just means that the word of God is sufficient for all things. It is, it's, the idea we get as, as, um, as reformed, like the, the Reformation, like Martin Luther, Protestants, is, the, is sola scriptura, the word of God alone. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. The word of God alone does not mean we only ever read or listen to the word of God. Sola scriptura means that the word of God is the final authority. Because those people, like Martin Luther and, whoa, sorry, Martin Luther and Calvin and others, they had things like, um, creeds and confessions. They wrote books all about theology. We should read those. The only thing we should do is if, if something they say comes up against something we know to be true in the Bible, this is our final authority. That's what sufficiency means. Is that it's, it is sufficient. It doesn't mean that it will tell you everything you need to know about your banking, your financing, your uh, there's all kinds of other, you can read other stuff, just filter it through scripture. The last one is authority. This is easy. If there is a God and he created everything and he's in control of all things, then his word has authority because he has authority. Right? Like that's the, that's the, the bottom line. If he chooses to um, reveal himself in his word, then his word has authority. And that's the, um, and that's the, the, the fourth word. So let's, so let's go back. Let's go to our um, second talking points question. Why does the Bible, so, and it kind of brings us back to inerrancy, or just why people attack the Bible. Why does the Bible face more scrutiny than any other work of ancient literature? I'm asking. It tell, Okay, so it, so it attacks us right at our, the source of our problem. It confronts us. Me no likey. Right? I don't like that. You don't either. Nobody does. What else? 
I want to be my own God. He goes along with that idea. It's this idea like, I want to be God, and it's telling me I'm not. So I'm going to throw this away, and I'm going to pick up something that tells me I can be my own God. You be you. What else? It requires action. See, the thing is, Julius Caesar isn't calling you to do anything. Jesus is. That's why it gets attacked. We, and it goes back to what Adam said and what Scott said. But also, but, guys, that's why. If there's, so when you go, man, the, look at all the stuff about how the Bible can't be true. It's, be, it's because it's, it is, you've, you've got to recognize it and go, it is all an attack of the enemy trying to convince us that God's word is not real. It is not true. And I believed it forever. We, you don't want to bash those people. You want to come to them with understanding and go, let's talk about that. And we'll get to how that is as we keep going. The back of your handout on the, in, in that, that had the table, the, uh, one of the other real proofs, like this, this was the part that really got me, I'm like, like, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and illuminated my heart to be able to read God's word. And I've shared that story over many times here. When I started reading God's story from beginning to end, and I realized that Jesus is, is literally from beginning to end, like it, he is there in Genesis 1, and he is there in Revelation 22, and all of the story is, is he's interwoven throughout it, and yet I go, and like the back of your little handout says, this story was written over thousands of years by t t tons of authors in many different languages, and all of them are telling the same story before the internet, before there was email, before they could check each other's work and make sure that they so how in the world would these people get together and somehow come up with some way of deceiving the world by telling a story so they could control people it is not historically even possible it cannot have happened because once those copies are out there they're out there it's not like nowadays where you put up where we put up a blog post and if somebody goes, hey, Doug, you spelled this word wrong, I can go back up to my blog at the, in the, on the church website and I can change the word. They can't do that. It's out there. there were, it'd be like changing a newspaper. Once the papers are printed and, and circulated, the, print is, the ink is out there. You just got to go, it is what it is, there's no changing it. That's the way the Bible came together. And that's I, another reason, um, one, I, that was what really ground, like I'm like, man, God is so powerful that he can tell his story through people, and it's all about Jesus, and that's actually what we'll talk about next week. So the first thing is, we need to be, um, we, need, we can trust God's story, and, and it is vital that we started there, because everything else I'm about to say means nothing to you unless you go, and guys, last thing I'll say about trust God's story. When I'm talking to somebody who was where I was, or who's, who's who does not believe the Bible or is doubting the Bible, my goal is the same, same thing as I, I mentioned when I talked about evolution. My goal isn't necessarily to prove to them that this is the truth. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. My goal is simply to say, look, what, then, then if, you don't, if you can't trust that what we have here is, is what the original authors wrote, it is what Jesus said, then you can't believe. I'm not saying you have to believe it. I'm saying, this is what I tell my students at Arizona Christian. I'm saying, but then you cannot believe any other historical work you study. So at least be, at least be consistent. If you're going to say, I don't believe the Bible because it was changed over time, then, then don't believe anything about world, ancient world history. Because this is the most reliable thing we have, right? Historically, it just is. So that leads us to, okay, so if that's true, Doug, what in the world is God saying? Well, we get to enter into that story. So here's Four words that tell God's story really, really easily. Creation, 
Rebellion, redemption, restoration. Say them with me. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. One more time. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. And so we're going to look at, we're going we're gonna to actually open our Bibles now because we're in church. And it, it, I just, it, Can I just tell you how much it pains me that we're 20 minutes into this message and we haven't actually opened the Word of God yet? Like, it's just like, it like hurts my soul, right? So, so but, but I get it. It's necessary. So now, what we're going to do is I'm going to show you where these four words are shown throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament. So grab your Bibles and we're going to do like a, bi- what do they call that? The Bible... Bible drill. So we're going to fly. So you're going to find the book of Isaiah. We're going to talk. We're going to quickly talk about creation. These are not the best verses. These are just verses the Holy Spirit gave me when I was studying for this message. So open up your Bibles. Um, if you open up to the middle, it falls open to Psalms or Proverbs. Um, sometimes to Isaiah. Mine fell open to Isaiah. You're going to find Isaiah chapter 40. We were um, um, Jolie read from chapter 43 at the start of our. Um, time, but at the start of my preaching, but Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to pick it up in verse 21, and here's how God speaks of creation in the Old Testament. Just one of the places. I mean, it's throughout, the, it's, it is literally from beginning to end of Scripture. Do you not know, do you not, have you not heard, so I'm in verse 21 of chapter 40. Has it not been told from you, to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits on the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He's talking about us. Who stretches out the heavens. God is the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Who spreads them out like a tent. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely have they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely have their their stem taken root in the earth when he, God, blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, says God, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created the stars, who brings their hosts by number, calling them by name. And do you remember what Jolene read and Isaiah goes on in chapter 43? You are mine. He's calling them out. We're going to jump to the end. Of the, of the chapter, verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now turn to the New Testament example of that. Go to almost to the end of your Bibles. Go to Colossians chapter 1. So to find Colossians, the easiest thing is if you get to like a big book of Hebrews, you start going back towards the left, it's right before all the T's of your Bible. So if you get to like 1st, 2nd Thessalonians and Timothy, go to your left a little bit. If you're in a whole bunch of books like um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, you're not quite far enough. So Colossians is between those and the T's of the book. Um, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read three verses out of Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Who's the he? All right, we jumped right into the, we jumped right into the, to the narrative here, so I gotta, we got to stop here. The he is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, Jesus, all things are held together. So that's the creation. Now let's look at the second, the second word, rebellion. 
So now go back to, um, for rebellion, we're going we're gonna to look at Psalm 14. The Psalms, like I said, are in the middle of your Bible. So right after Job, you get to the Psalms. I'm going to look at Psalm 14. It's only seven verses, but I'm just going to read a few of them. You're going to read it this week, so I won't read the whole thing. But Psalm 14 is talking about, like, our rebellion or the depravity of all people. He says, for the fool, so I'm in verse chapter, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are all corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That ought to sound familiar, and we'll get there in a minute. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is anyone who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Now turn to the New Testament example of that. Anybody know where I'm going? Romans 3, so because that's exactly what Paul quotes, so you should be able to find, if you've been here for a while, which I know some of you have not, and that's great, I love seeing new faces, I love hearing pages turn, um, Romans, we were in Romans for 39 weeks, so if you're wondering, we're off, we're most of the time, we're like face in the book the whole time, um, Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 6, Romans chapter 3, I'm sorry, in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews? Are we any better off? Not at all. So Paul's saying, he's, he's sort of picking up in the middle of this, of this rebellion story. He's saying in verse 10, For there is none righteous, no, not one. Quoting the psalm. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Thanks for the good news, God. Now jump to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 26. All of this, this creation rebellion is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus that brings us to our we're going to get the last two words in a minute but I want to see if you're paying attention last week look at your last talking points question why did God in light of what I even what I just read why did God allow the rebellion what about grace to what to show his glory in, he shows his glory in the stars. He shows his glory in your body. Why? To show his glory in his pursuing grace. Not, not even just grace, as if you could say just and the grace of God. Pursuing grace. From the beginning, he is, I loved how um, several people even prayed this idea that he is a pursuing God. And that leads us to redemption. I'm not going to have you turn to the Old Testament example. We're going to save some time. It, we use it every Seder meal that we do during the Passover season. So in Exodus chapter 6, in Exodus chapter 6, it's going to come up on the screen, so you don't need to turn there. You're, going to, you're eventually going to turn to Hebrews. But in, in Exodus chapter 6, talking about the redemption, Paul says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and you will be my God. So, so in Exodus, God is talking about the redemption of his people through 
the Passover lamb. And we celebrate that every Seder. We talk about these four cups. right? There's the cup of sanctification, and there's the cup of judgment, and there's the cup of, um, of, um, of redemption. Duh. And then there's, and then there's the, the cup of praise, the last cup, and we take those together. And that, that was what Jesus was doing when he instituted communion, which we're going to get to in just a minute, Lord willing. So um, the, the New Testament example of that, so hopefully you stayed in Romans, so go to the right of where we were, several books. Go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. And we're going to pick it up starting in verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, so he's, he's even the writer of Hebrews is referring to like the tabernacle during the time of Moses, not made with hands, though it was, though it, that is, not of this creation. So he's talking about Jesus coming. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus' sacrifice is God's story of creation, rebellion, redemption. It's eternal redemption, once for all time. No need for you to do anything else. Jesus said it himself on the cross, John 19.30, it is finished. That's the eternal redemption that we have. And then he says in verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, with whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience de from dead works to serve the living God? So now the writer of Hebrews is saying, here's his creation, rebellion. Christ performed the redemption. Now what about this restoration thing? Well, I mentioned this verse a couple weeks ago, so I won't have you turn here, or last week actually, in Job 19. Job says, Job, this is long before Jesus ever lived, long before the resurrection actually happened. He says, at, he says this, this I know that at the last, he says, this I know, my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. Right? Even though my body is going to decay, I will see him in glory. That's, that is the restoration of all things promised by Job thousands of years before Christ. Now, in the New Testament, we see that in best, I mean, we see that all over the place, but go to Revelation chapter 21, the last place I'm going to have you turn, and then we are going to um, land the plane, so to speak. So turn to Revelation, Revelation is really easy to find, Revelation 21 is even easier to find, it's like the second to the last chapter in your Bible, so it's right at the very end of your Bible, it says, starting in verse 1, he says, he says, this is Paul, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John saying, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is the church coming down. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What does that sound like? The dwelling place of God is with man. What? The tabernacle, the temple, go back even further. The garden, right? Where do we start? Genesis 1. God was with them in the garden. Our rebellion caused that separation. When he restores rebellion, 
Redemption has occurred. When restoration comes, he's slamming these two things back together, and he finishes where he started. But now, the, but now here's the good news. Look at, jump to, jump to verse 5. This is Jesus talking. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, because these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the one who is and who was and who is to come. I'm the almighty one. He's like, I, I'm the one restoring everything. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay, guys. Because of who God is, it, whatever it is. Like some of you are really struggling right now. I, I get it. I, we all have those seasons. It is going to be okay. Because there will be no more crying and no more sorrow and no more pain. And no more tears. Why? Because our good God is telling the most amazing love story in the world. Right? You guys read about it today. I'm not going to take the time to turn there. I was going to have us kind of walk through the passages that you read today in your daily reading out of Romans. But we spent so much time in Romans. I think, I think you'll be okay. But I, I want to point out one more thing about about this idea of how we can trust the Bible and how, and how to deal with people who tell you you can't or tell you they won't. And then what they'll do is they'll say something like, they'll point out some verse. Like, well, in Mark, whatever, in Mark's gospel, it actually says Jesus got angry with the leper. And you'll be like, uh, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Right? Th that's okay. J just say, you know what? I'm not sure how to answer your question, but I'd love to research it and get back to you. I promise you, I promise promise you there are answers there are whole books about answers right there, there are no contradictions in god's word there are things that are confusing right but there are no contradictions in god's word but here's a great here's a great place for you to train your brain whether it's when somebody approaches you or when you're reading the word and you're like boil a goat in his mother's milk what in the world does that have to do with anything like why bring that up god Fair question, honestly, Lord, but here's, here are the four questions you ask. Ask yourself these four. Train your brain to ask these four questions. Why is this sentence that I just read, boiling a goat in his mother's milk in Leviticus, why is it in this paragraph? Why is this paragraph in this chapter? Why is this chapter in this book? And why is this book even in the Bible? Why is this sentence in this paragraph? Why is this paragraph in this chapter? Why is this chapter in this book? In other words, what's the purpose of Leviticus in God's story? And then why is this book in the Bible, right? Like, that, like that's the old, because, because that's where you'll find your answers almost every time to the things that you and I and other people are struggling with that they see as not making sense is because they're, we're pulling it out of the, the whole narrative of creation to recreation. And when we do that, we're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense to me. You've got to put it back in the story. Context is king. We've talked about that. Let scripture interpret scripture. We've talked about that. Right? Ask these four questions and go, so when you read something like, 
what um, I think Caitlin was the one that read it during our prayer time. When she reads um, Romans 1, 12, 25, and 26, where she's like, they, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they began to worship the creature rather than the creator. You want to stop and go, that's not very fun. Like, okay, so, okay, but God, why is this sentence in this paragraph for me? Not for those people out there that really need to hear about how their lifestyle is going to send them to hell. Why is this for me? And then when you get to something like Romans chapter 5 where he says, Therefore, we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been justified. You're like, okay, what? okay, that sounds great, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, here's what it is. If you, if you don't understand that we were once, if you, if you skip Romans 1 through 4 where we were enemies of God, Chapter 5 doesn't mean a whole lot. So why is this sentence in this paragraph? Why is this paragraph in this chapter? Why is this chapter in this book? Why is this book in the Bible in light of God's story? Because God is telling a story. So as the music team comes up and we get ready to respond in our time of singing and communion, I want to, guys, get this. Because the, the last passage you read in Romans today is all about one word. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's all about the word worship. It's all, it's guys, we, you were, here's, here's, here's the ultimate story that God is telling. You, me, every human who's ever lived was made in the image of God to be a worshiper. And we choose to worship ourselves. We choose to worship the world. Or, by the power of the Spirit, you choose to worship God. Therefore, present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual service or act of worship. That's what Paul tells us. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that we can prove, our very lives can prove what the story of God is, what the will of God is, is what Paul tells us. But what he's really saying is, so that your life will tell God's story. Does it? Because if you're sitting here today and you, and, and you don't know, I'm, I'm asking, just have a conversation. Not because we're not going to let you leave here till you're converted. That's not, that's not who we are because we know God well enough to know that's not up to us. But I'd love to talk to you. Because if you know people like that, like, like just reach out to them and ask them a question. Step into their story. Let them know. Like, let them, hey, just, I see you. I see you, I hear you. I know you're hurting. You know how I know you're hurting? Because so am I. And I can't imagine getting through this life without knowing the good news of God's pursuing grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beautiful truth that you are a pursuing God. I thank you that from the beginning of your story, we see evidences of... Um, the rebellion in action, Satan questioning your word, Adam and Eve worshiping themselves. And we also see right there from the beginning, you're pursuing grace. 
You covered their shame. And you're still covering the shame of those of us that say, I am a sinner in need of the covering of a Savior. And that through the eons, we're going to see even next week and who Jesus is through the eons, you've been telling the story of, I love you. The cross proves it. In this grand narrative of, of your story of creation to recreation, right in the middle of that stands this exclamation point that looks like our Savior hung on a cross. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And instead, pour it out on me. Remind us of that good story. In Jesus' name, amen.